We are, have been in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, a book written by an old man who in his younger midlife walked away from the reality of God and reaped the consequences of a really bad decision in doing that. And he came to the point of saying, I'm living only under the sun. And the only under the sun experience uh, led to kind of two major streams. The first is uh, Epicureanism, which is the pursuit of pleasure in a socially acceptable fashion. And so Solomon pursued ultimate meaning in several issues. One was in, was, uh, in knowledge. He, he wanted to learn more and more and more. And he said, well, really that's a dead end street because you never can know enough. Uh, another stream he went down, road he went down, was uh, pleasure. He gave himself the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, he became a wine connoisseur. He became an architect and a builder and a developer and a, a great poet. And he had male and female musicians and the whole gamut. He was a true Renaissance man. But again, a dead end street. Uh, another was the issue of the pursuit of labor as an end of itself. He became, I gave myself to great projects and to work, but as a dead end street, he said, I really, at the end of the day, do not know who I will leave my wealth to or if they'll even remember me. Yeah. And, and then the fourth area we've looked at was the area of just accumulating wealth. He says, you know, wealth just accumulated for the accumulation of wealth really leads to, that doesn't give satisfaction. So under the sun, Epicureanism in a socially acceptable fashion. He wasn't wild and upright. He, he was doing what he wanted to do as a king in a way that was not scandalous. But really the second issue of the under the sun only lifestyle and this phrase occurs 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. It says, it's like, it says living life only under the sun is like trying to catch the wind in your hand. It's like trying to embrace something that is embraceable. It is unsustainable. He said when it comes to the concept of God, God is undefinable because Solomon in his mid and later years walked down a dead-end street that said there are multiple gods with multiple definitions. And I'm going to try to show you this morning that if there's multiple definitions of multiple gods, there's no place to stand. If there's no place to stand, there's no truth. Welcome to post-modernity long before the postmodern world became popular. But we, we read that from a, an account in the book of First Kings as the backdrop to what we've been studying. Let me just read First Kings chapter 11, 1 to 8. It's in your worship guide. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, he loved Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Sidians and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord Jehovah had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Stop. Just stop there for one second. So young people who maybe one day will be married and thinking about getting married one day. Let me just say, the Bible says so clearly, marry in the Lord. If you're a believer, you marry a believer. So when young people come to me a lot of times and say, what about getting married? I say, well, biblically speaking, in the big picture, there, there are two prerequisites for getting married. You marry in the Lord. You marry a believer. And secondly, you marry someone from the opposite sex. Those are, that's, that's the big picture. Because whoever you marry will turn your heart, either good or bad. I mean, I tell you, the, the most important decision you will ever make if you get married, apart from your d decision to follow Jesus, is who you will marry. And some of you married way above yourselves, and it has been good which means that some of you married way below yourselves, which is not very good, but that's beside the point. Just thank God. Thank God for being part of the guys reaching up. Okay. All right, go back to the text. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had 1,000 women. It's crazy. And his wives turned away his heart. Hear that? Turned away his heart. For, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not 
truly devoted to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. <clears throat> so Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built an altar or a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. We believe that involved child sacrifice, which was very common in the pagan world. On the mountain east of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So I'm, I'm just going to walk through this and, and, and say, compare and contrast, under the sun only approach to God and a biblical approach to God. Just three points, then a few applications and we're, we're done. <clears throat> Very important stuff. Number one, under the sun only people believe that there are many, many, many gods. Therefore, if there are many, 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 many gods, then God is ultimately undefinable. Because your God is good for you if you're a city knight. Your God is good, good for you if you're an Amorite. Your God is good for you. Your God is good for you. Moloch is good for you. This, I mean, it's, it's just, so, so, so God is ultimately uh, undefinable. You, you can't get to the concept of God. Conversely, if you have a biblical worldview, you believe God is definable. Just a real quick statement from a confessional statement called the Baptist Faith and Message. There is only, there, there's one and only one living God and true God. And he is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. He, who is eternal, who has no beginning, and who has no end. He is gloriously Trinitarian, and he is the one true God. But when you surrender that, when you surrender that, you have no place to stand. We, we quote the Apostles' Creed from, that comes from about the year 300 A.D. We believe in God the Father Almighty. He can be defined. And in His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So, so God, we believe, is definable because we stand under the revelation of Scripture. <clears throat> Point two. If God is undefinable, then most people will try to find a God uh, who will give meaning and cohesion that's either inherited from their fathers or some God that's user-friendly the way they pursue life and, and do stuff. A user-friendly God that, that meets your needs. I, uh, Romans, let me read Romans 1. This is New Testament, chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says this. For although they knew God, they, they knew God. They knew the God who's a great creator God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their, their, their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so they left the true God. Your hearts become darkened and darkened and darkened, and you leave the true God, and you start worshiping things. A guy named G.K. Chesterton, who lived in the 1800s in England, a great thinker, and he said this, he says, when, when man stops worshiping the true God, he doesn't stop worshiping because we were made to worship. But he begins to worship anything and everything because you have no place to stand. I'll have no place to stand. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm sometimes, I'll, I'll, I'm just amazed at, at what, what people believe. I'm, I'm, give me, I'll give you a couple of examples. So this, on a sliding scale, this is kind of strange, and this is much more acceptable, but still outside of who God is. Just Google Scientology. I read about Tom Cruise, who really is a great actor, uh, <clears throat> Mission Impossible stuff, and, and John Travolta, who really is not, but that's beside the point. And, and uh, I'll read about these, hard, these Hollywood people who are, who are gifted and smart and with it, and they're involved in Scientology. And just, they don't, they, they believe, what they believe is weird. It's based upon non-historical, just leap into nothingness, irrationality. It is amazing. I'm going, you really believe this stuff? Or years ago, there was this group in California called Heaven's Gate, and, and a lot of people in it were incredibly bright, and they believed that when they, the Haley 
heavy bop comet came through that there was going to be a spaceship that would come down and would take them and bring them into a terrestrial kingdom. And so they, they, they were asexual. In fact, some of them, without getting too graphic, some of the men did physical things to make themselves asexual, which is, no thank you, not going to be part of that club. Uh, they they uh, believed in uh, not getting married, not having children, um, just weird. And they were, some of them were very bright. And yet they thought the, the spaceship was going to come tonight. So they all, about less, around 40 people, all committed suicide together. And it's just a leap into nothingness. No matter what you believe about the Christian faith, the, the, the apostle said the Christian faith was a historical faith with an empty tomb with a real body that was touched and seen by 500 men that ascended into heaven. Now, they may all have been on, on some type of far-out experience, but they said it really happened. If you'd been to the cross and rubbed the cross, splinters in your hand. It really happened, a real body. So anyway, on, on the other end of the scale are, are, are well-meaning people who, who believe in a God, but they don't really want to define him, and they just want to feel good about life. There's a guy named Christian Smith. You've heard this name probably. He's a, he's a distinguished professor of sociology at, at Notre Dame, and he did copious research with thousands of young people in the around, around the year 2005 and came up with a phrase that the vast majority of young people believe in morally therapeutic deism, <clears throat> MTD. Now, first of all, Christian Smith teaches at this school in Indiana. It's a great school. Notre Dame is a great school academically. Their, their PhD program in church history may be the finest church history PhD program in America. Academically, it's a great school. But, and there's some wonderful folks in our church that went to Notre Dame. But let's just, let me just be bluntly honest. They're going to be deeply mourning on December the 29th. At about 7.30, there's something that's going to take place in Dallas, Texas, and it's going to be sad. So we be kind to Notre Dame people, okay? Be nice to them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get a life, okay? <laughs> now, so anyway, but Christian Smith said people believe in morally therapeutic deism. It's got five points. They're bullet statements. Let me read them. Number one, a God exists that created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be involved in your life unless there's a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, that, that is non-biblical. It is, it is nonsensical. It is, and yet many, a lot of you guys live here. That's kind of what you believe. And I want to challenge you that. That doesn't get you to heaven. That doesn't get you to heaven. That doesn't get you to the, to the bloody cross where a living God died on the cross for your sins. That gives you no place to stand. So see, if you believe that God cannot be defined and, and that, that, that because of that you've got to find your own God, it, it really it gives you basically no place to stand. A few weeks ago I was doing some research and I came across some quotes uh, regarding marriage. And these... These are all from magazines, Ms. Journal, People Magazine, and other people. I guess they're verifiable. But, um, and I, I like some of these, the people, these three people. I know two of them, and I really like the two I know. But no, I'll just read them. Kristen Bell. I like Kristen Bell. Uh, she is, has a long-term relationship with a guy named Dax Shepard, who starred in an incredible show called Parenthood. It's a great show for years, about eight years, I think. But she was in Men's Journal, and she said this about marriage. I'm quite positive we are not meant to be monogamous, which means one man and one woman sexually together for life. It is difficult and it requires a lot of attention, vulnerability, and openness. Close quote. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the definition of marriage. Openness, hard work, vulnerability. I went, wow. Again, this is a bright woman, but when, you, when you've departed from truth, you just stand in midair. Or this is from Jada Pinkett Smith, the wife of Will Smith. Will Smith is a wonderful actor. And I've read for years they have, quote, an open marriage. I don't know if it's true or not, but they've talked about it and kind of teased. Open marriage means that you can be with another man or another woman if you're married. It's no big deal. And she said regarding her husband and what he does, she says this, quote, this is just astounding to me. I'm going, wow. She says, I don't care what he does as long as he can look at, his, at himself in the mirror in the morning and be okay with himself, close quote. I'm, I'm, c c come on. 
do what you want to do as long as you feel good about it. Well, you just gave somebody license to whatever. Or Sienna Miller, a beautiful woman, don't know much about her acting. She said in People Magazine, I don't know, monogamy, again, one man, is a weird thing for me. It is an overrated virtue because, let's face it, we're all just blank animals. Close quote. In other words, the only people in the animal kingdom, only animals in the animal kingdom that are monogamous are some arctic wolf and maybe the peregrine falcon and maybe the groundhog, I don't know what. But so, so, so we're just part of the animal kingdom. It's, it's ridiculous. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. The Bible says you're made in the image of God. The Bible says you are, 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 are incredibly gifted. The Bible says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and he'll cling to his singular wife and they'll become one flesh. And that's a beautiful thing. The Bible says about office holders in the New Testament that an elder and a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. The Bible puts down any type of multiple arrangement called polygamy or polyamory. But, but again, when you depart from the truth, it really gives you no place to stand. Conversely, the biblical worldview is this. God is good, and he is love, and he has spoken. And God's desire to be worshiped, and my desire for my flourishing are one and the same. That's a great concept. You just get hold of that man is so good. God is good. God is love. He has spoken. His desire to be honored and worshiped. And my desire for flourishing are one and the same. In John chapter 6, the disciple, Jesus laid down some really strong statements. And his disciples were standing there. And most of the people left. And he turned to a small group of people. And he looked at them. And he said... Who are you guys? What are you guys going to do? And the apostle Peter hit a home run. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, people who, have, who come to Jesus say, you know, he's God. Where do we go? The tomb's empty. He fulfilled all the promises. Where, where, where do we go? Because God has spoken with finality in the person of Jesus. Last night we had in the, in the sanctuary the Charleston Symphony and uh, presented and singers presented Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is an incredible piece of music written by a guy named Handel over a series of about four to five weeks. It's an amazing piece of music. And the whole music is just the scripture being sung. I mean, it is glorious. And our own Jennifer Lucan was one of the soloists. And it was just a wonderful night. And, but there's, a, there's a, a major score of just maybe five songs into Messiah. And it's, it's entitled, it goes like this. Um, for, the, for, the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It says time after For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And you say, God has spoken. We stand under the authority of the Bible. Where do we go? We certainly don't go to morally therapeutic deism that doesn't define God, and God is some abstract, undefinable nothingness. No, no, no. We have a real flesh and blood Savior who died on the cross. And he's Trinitarian, and he's glorious. And, and he has splendor pouring from his being. Where do we go? And I was thinking about Exodus and how God spoke to the children of Israel. Let me just read some verses in Exodus 20, of the Ten part of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord God Jehovah, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You go, wow. 
God is jealous for us in that he wants his name to be honored and he wants our flourishing. I am so glad I serve a jealous God who loves me enough to woo over me. Read 1 Corinthians 11. And, and he says, later he says that Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of the Lord may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I'm so glad that God's jealousy is centered on the fact that he, he loves us. He woos over us. He dances over us when we do good. And he weeps when we do bad. And he said, you know, when you don't, when you don't honor me, there's something that happens to the third and the fourth generation, to your children and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. He doesn't visit their sins upon them. But they, they see the way you live, and all too often we imitate bad behavior. And so your carnal, uncaring, ungod-centered, morally therapeutic, or city night deism is visiting on your kids and your grandkids. Listen, break the cycle of sin. If you come from a, a family that didn't honor the name of Jesus, and the only time the name of Jesus was used, it was in a cursing fashion. Use the name of Jesus to worship. And give your kids and your grandkids a future and a hope. I'm glad God is jealous. I, I have enjoyed watching this show, BBC show. I like BBC. Poldark. Have you guys have seen Poldark? Raise your hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. That's not many. How many of you guys went to Messiah last night? Raise your hand. I got to work with you guys. You're cultural Philistines, all right? Poldark is BBC. It's a show about a guy named Ross Poldark, and he is a good looking dude, and he's manly. Okay? Poldark. I just, they just finished the fourth season. I watched the fourth season. So Poldark uh, fought the Revolutionary War for the British, came back to England, and he's trying to survive. He's married to an enchantingly wonderful woman named Damalza. Weird name, but really sweet woman. And he and Damalza have this thing. And Ross Poldark. The thing about, I like about Poldark is, is, first of all, uh, he, uh, the story's good. But secondly, the bad guys are so bad, you just hate them. The, the truth is, even really bad guys have, are made in the image of God. So there, there's sometimes likable things about even bad guys at times. But these bad guys are so bad. You just want to get rid of them. So in season, I'll tell you this about Ross Poldark. Time after time, he's dumber than a bag full of hammers. To quote my brother, Wardell. He's just not very smart. If you've seen it, you go, going, sometimes I go, give me a break. Nobody's this dumb. So in season four, he's married to Damalza. And he's in the House of Parliament. And there is a serpentine man who's bad, who's known to be a seducer of married women. All women, but especially married women. And he's just, he's bad. And so it shows Ross Poldark going to parties with his wife. And this guy's over there whispering to her ear, rubbing her back, touching her arm. And meanwhile, Ross Poldark is simmering across the room, gazing at him with, 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 with a bad gaze. And I thought, Ross, you're stupid. Let me tell you something. I've been married 38 years. My wife is, she's fine. If anybody tries to speak to my wife in a carnal fashion or to touch her in a seductive fashion, I will take him out. I will. And if he's too big for me to take out, I know guys that can take him out. <laughs> you know, he's going to get right across, around, right across his nose. Because I'm, I'm a jealous husband. I long for the affection of my wife. That's a God-given thing. So you, you take the imperfection of my love and the silliness of my love and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the perial nature of my love, and you look at the love of Abba Father for us, and it's just heightened 100 million times. And God says, I'm, I'm jealous for your affection. So, so thanks be to God that we serve a God who has spoken, church. Uh, thirdly, very quickly, truth, if God cannot be defined, if there are multiple gods, then truth ultimately cannot be defined. 
as compared to what we believe is, for, for example, verse 6. It says very clearly, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so evil is not non-evil. They're not this one and the same. The, the Bible says there is an evil, therefore there is a non-evil. So there, there are standards. Just, just, just to point these things out. The vast majority of people you know, and they're dear people, and they're neighbors, and they go to school with you, and they, you do play group with them. The vast majority of people believe in some type of belief in a God, but he can't really be defined, and he wants to be happy. And I'm saying, no, there's a God, and he's glorious, and he's kind, and he's revealed himself in the, in the name of Jesus. So, so once you get hold of that, and you understand that God is definable, then you understand as you read the overview of Scripture, there is a big meta-narrative that says all the small streams in the Old Testament, the Lamb of Atonement, the, the cities of refuge in Joshua, which is a great story, six cities of refuge, uh, uh, all the sacrificial system, the, the, the fact that God, we are a pilgrim people, all these things are tied into a glorious rope that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Listen to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says this. But when the fullness of time had come, that's key, the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That was, that's us. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. In the fullness of time, God took all the Old Testament prophecies, foreshadowing stories. He wove them into a powerful rope that found its fulfillment in Jesus. So, so we're part of a big story. The fullness of time. Let me just read this. Is, this is John chapter 8. Christ is having a discussion with the Jewish leaders, and it says this. Christ, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced. Abraham was in the, Old, uh, the book of Genesis a long time ago. Your, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years of age. Really, he was 31, 32, okay? You're not even 50 years of age, and you've seen Abraham, who lived centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which is the term God uses in the Old Testament to describe himself, I am. And so they picked up stones to kill him. They understood exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. And they, they, they said, no, we, we, can't, we can't. This is blasphemy. He, he says of another place in the Gospels, he said, you know, destroy this temple. You know, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They said, well, you can't do that. We're talking about his body. He says, you guys all look for a sign. He says, you're going to have one sign. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth, and I will rise again. Boom. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Make himself equal with God. He says, I and the Father are one. He goes on and on and on. And then in John 21, the very last chapter of the Gospel of John, the resurrected Jesus says to Peter, you can miss this unless you think about it. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, I think Peter's talking about you're the resurrected Jesus, you're God in the flesh. You're omniscient. You're all-knowing. I don't think Peter has said that a week before, two weeks before. You know all things. And I just thought about some of the, the, the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John chapter 8 and 9. He says, I am the door of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, John, John 10. I, I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And I am the true vine, John 15. So, so, because we understand God is, and these stories weave into a great meta-narrative that points to Jesus. In the fullness of time, church, 
God fulfilled all of his promises to his Old Testament people when he became a baby. That's the gospel. That's, that's the story. And so when we look at this big story, we come to a point, church, of, of speaking about something called the exclusivity of Jesus. In other words, the only way to be saved is through the work of Christ. So for those of us who are here today and we have friends and neighbors, the only way for our friends and neighbors and family members and for us to be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. For what? What I could never do for myself, Jesus did for me. I'm so glad when I was 19 at the Citadel my freshman year, a friend told me that story. And over a series of weeks, I believed. I believed. And one of my first thoughts, I remember walking across campus. I was a freshman. Only time, when I was there, the only time you ever can walk on the parade deck is if you're going to a religious meeting. So sometimes you just find a good religious meeting just to walk on the parade deck. And I remember looking up into the starry sky and saying, God, you made those. Not just a simple this was kind of, wow. It's really cool. So let me give you three points now. When it comes to the gospel and, and Jesus, and three things. Number one, it takes courage. Uh, you guys are in environments where if, if you say there's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Christ, people will think you're narrow-minded or bigoted, or, and I would just say to you, be courageous. Speak the name of Christ. Speak the gospel. Speak, work hard, let your light shine before men, but, but speak his name. In the uh, 17 or 1800s, uh, mid-1800s, 1830, there was a guy named Peter Cartwright who was a Methodist preacher, and Peter Cartwright was a uh, preaching at some meetings, and uh, he was just a great preacher of the gospel. And so uh, some people came to him and said, uh, Mr. Cartwright, we, we hear that tonight there's a rumor that President Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, is going to, he may be here, so you may want to tone down what you say because, you know, the president's here, you don't want to offend him by anything you say. And, and Peter Cartwright said, okay, I got you. Thanks for saying that. And uh, Andrew Jackson, by the way, was a tough dude. I mean, he was a fought in duels. He was a hero of the Battle of New Orleans. He was uh, lived with a bullet lodged in his body uh, for 40 years. But he's also called Old Hickory. I mean, he was a young, you know, young kid, Revolutionary War. He's living in South Carolina, and a British officer says, "Boy, blacken my boots." He's 13, and Jackson says, "I will nev- never blacken the boots of a British officer as long as my country's fighting against them." The guy pulled out his sword and swung at Jackson. Jackson put his hand up, cut his hand, gashed his head. So he went through life with a big gash in his forehead because he wouldn't blacken the boots of a British officer. I mean, he's a tough dude, but he's also a guy. If you read his history, he was had some issues, but I think he really trusted Christ. He read the Bible every night. He was a man of his word. Had some rough edges, but anyway. So, Cartwright gets up and he preaches. And he doesn't, a lot of people doesn't know if Jackson has slipped in. He said, he said, brothers and sisters, in the middle of his sermon, he said, I hear that President Andrew Jackson may be in attendance tonight. He said, I just want to say this. President Jackson the only way for you to be saved is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You deserve hell. Come to the Savior. That's what you call toning down your rhetoric. You know what I mean? But I, I read that and I thought, man, get, we need people like that. After the service, Jackson bolted to the front, grabbed his hand and said, Pastor Cartwright, if I had a thousand men like you, I could conquer the world. <laughs> so be, be courageous. Be courageous in a world that believes more and more in post-modernity, nothingness, and everything's in midair. And it's, no, no, we, 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 the Lord our God has spoken. The tomb is empty. Jesus ascended to heaven, we believe, on the Mount of Olives, which is the same place where Solomon built altars and sacrificed babies. Boom. Boom. 
Secondly, walk in humility. Walk in humility. God opens eyes. Don't, don't ever berate people. Be kind. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, uh, verse 24 to 26, but, but the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. If perhaps they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So we, 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 we love and we preach and we say, God, open eyes. I talked to a guy just out here, man, it's such a good story. His son has been spurning the gospel for 40 years and this man has been speaking Christ to him and speaking Christ to him and the guy's been, is, is, a, is involved in, in, in substance abuse and wife left him and he just, he said, I, I, I called him, I said, I'm gonna say it to you one more time. You're just gonna make you mad, but you need Jesus. That's what you need. And the guy didn't get mad and he went to church three weeks ago and he sat in the parking lot and he cried and he went back in the church and he found an elder and he prayed to receive Jesus. He said, you can tell me that story all day long. But you, we approach people with humility. I tell them man to man, I said, you know, Matthew 7 verse 4, Jesus says, why do you look at your brother with the speck in his eye and say, brother, there's a speck in your eye when you have a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. And Jesus says, get rid of the two-by-four, and then you can help your brother. You know, it doesn't say forget your brother. This is, no, no, you get rid of the two-by-four and say, brother, let, let me help you. So I want to be careful about saying this, but I'm going to say it. Um, I, I've been, I was incredibly blessed this week listening to different statements made at President Bush's funeral. Uh, listen, if you want to know how to honor your son, listen to what George W. said about his daddy. It's 13 minutes, and it is powerful. I didn't get to watch the funeral because I had appointments, but I've talked to people that said it was, an, it was a great experience. So I keep on watching this, and I'm reading stories about President Bush and his wife Barbara and their tender love and how, uh, how he was really a, a, a valiant young man as a fighter pilot and, and how he was gracious, and, and, uh, and it just really blessed my soul. Now, conversely, the present president had uh, said this about our former Secretary of State that worked with for him, a guy named Rex Tillerson. He's, he's dumb and he's lazy. I thought, wow. And I, I appreciate the present president. I appreciate the fact that they've stood resolutely for religious liberty. Don't ever forget that. I appreciate Judges Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Thank you. I appreciate But you know, guys, humility is good. Being a bully is bad. Your words count. And so as we talk to people, we don't do that to people. We're gracious and we're approachable. Number three, if we're to understand the gospel, we must understand that we're part of a team. I was recently reading about Reese Witherspoon. I like Reese Witherspoon. She won the Academy Award in 2006 by portraying June Carter Cash, Johnny Cash's wife, in a movie called Walk the Line. It's really a powerful movie. And in her acceptance speech, she said this. I'm going to just read two paragraphs. The first is for you grandmothers out there. It's kind of an encouragement. She says, uh, she says, I want to... Reese Witherspoon, I believe whose great-great-great-great-grandfather was John Witherspoon, the only clergyman who signed the Declaration of Independence. Just for fun. Just for fun. If you're ever on Jeopardy, you can, you can know that, okay? She said, I want to say to my grandmother that she was one of the biggest inspirations in my life. She taught me how to be a real woman and how to have strength and self-respect and to never give those things away. They are the same qualities I saw in June Carter. June Carter Cash died several years before the movie, so she didn't know her. And then she said this. People used to ask June Carter how she was doing, and she used to say, I'm just trying to matter, close quote. And I know what she means. You know, I'm just trying to matter and live a good life and to make work that means something to somebody. Here's the rest of the story. June Carter Cash was a follower of Christ. June Carter Cash had two horrible failed marriages as a young woman. Uh, bad husbands, and, and so she met this guy named Johnny Cash, 
And they got married. And they were married 37 years until she died. And, and she walked with this man. And she loved this man. Johnny Cash was in and out of rehab for decades. And she did it because she had a heart to honor and love Christ. But see, I, I thought, you know, as, as a believer, if I'm truly born of the Spirit, one of the things I should cry out is, I just want to matter. I, I, just, want to, I just want to make a difference. And see, that's why we're involved in something as a great team called the Church Militant, called the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It was not just given to the apostles. It's for us. And I can't get out of my brain last week, this wonderful couple that spoke to us, and they work in northern Africa in the Middle East. They said there's 800 linguistic groups in the area that they oversee, and, and less than 400 of them have the Bible in their language or a gospel presence. And I'm going, God, give us a vision for the nations and the neighborhoods. Give us a vision that we're part of a, we're part of a team. One of my heroes is a guy named uh, William Carey. William Carey was the father of modern-day missions from England. No training, self-taught, learned at least eight languages, a cobbler, started reading the Bible and thinking about people groups and nations. And, and so William Carey said, people, somebody's got to go to India and, and Burma and Sri Lanka, and, 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 and he had a, a, a big bull of a man, his best friend, named Andrew Fuller, maybe one of the best theological minds of the 19th century. Andrew Fuller was a big blacksmith type of guy in a fairly small church, but a great theologian. And William Carey looked at Andrew Fuller and says, I will go down into the well if you hold the ropes. I'll go to India. But you got to hold the ropes. You got to pray for me. You got to help raise money. You got to support me. You got to be my brother. William Carey goes in 1793. He's there for 41 years or 1794. He never comes home. He dies in India, Calcutta, a tough, tough place. But Andrew Fuller held the ropes, church. He raised money. He prayed. He prayed. He cared. He held the ropes. And we, some of you will go out. Campuses, you'll go out to unreached people groups, you'll go out, but all of us are part of the team and we're going to hold the ropes. <clears throat> Some of you are going to get out here and you're going to make a ton of money and I hope you make a ton of money if you have a heart for the Great Commission. If you have a heart to see the, the next generation is blessed, hold the ropes. So maybe this illustration will hit you even a little better. These guys. This, these are two guys uh, that play football in our state. Why is it going to come? Okay. The, the guy on the left is a guy named Zach Bailey. He plays for South Carolina. He's 6'5", 315. Big guy. Offensive lineman. All Southeast Conference. From Somerville. A good, good guy. Uh, the guy on the right is smaller. He's only 6'4", and he weighs 312. And his name is Mitch Hyatt. Mitch Hyatt Again, all ACC, the last two years have been voted the best offensive lineman in the ACC. Now, here, here's the thing about football. I love football. But, uh, and, and if you're an offensive lineman, the only time you hear their name is when? When there's a penalty. Oh, Mitch Hyatt's called for holding. Oh, Zach Bailey was called for being an illegal pursuer downfield or whatever, and flagged. Oh, you, you never hear their names. You know what? If you're part of the team, that's okay. You're blocking for the running back. You're blocking for the, so the quarterback can throw to a receiver, and their names are broadcast. It's, it's okay because, because we're part of a team. That's the way I feel about, about, about the Great Commission. Some of us will block, some will score, but Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory. You're part of a great team. If you claim the name of Jesus, you're part of a great team. Now, we're um, taking up an offering. Let me tell you about the lady we're taking the offer for. Her, her name was Lottie Moon. This is just a real quick biographical thing. Lottie Moon, before Photoshopping. That's just who she is, okay? Uh, Lottie Moon was uh, born in Virginia, I think in 1852-ish, 1850. Um, she was a fiery Four foot three to four foot five inch person. A lot of, lot of fire. 
um, studied at an academy, and the professor, who was a professor of linguistic languages, said, uh, the most brilliant woman I've ever taught. She was very bright. So Lottie Moon went to a, something called Albemarle Academy, and she had some classmates that kept talking to her about Christ. And there was a man that was going to be preaching in a local church named John Broadus, who became one of the founding professors of Southern Seminary, a wonderful, wonderful man. And so they said, uh, come in here, Dr. Broadus. And so she went and listened to him and left, and her friend said, what do you think? And she said, I, I don't know. I, I, I could care less. And they were just kind of grieved. And her name was Charlotte Diggs Moon, D-I-G-G-S. And people say, well, what does D stand for? She say, devil. Just to kind of giggle, devil. She said, oh, great. So that night she went to bed, and there was a dog in the next yard that barked all night long. She couldn't sleep. She said the longer that dog barked, the more she kept hearing Broadus talk about the gospel of Jesus and the death of Jesus for her sin and the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of heaven. And she said the next day she got up, she thought about it all day long, and that night she went back, she heard. The next day she surrendered her life to Jesus. She repented of her sin. And she became a missionary in China. She went there. She was a missionary for 40-some years, and she was coming home to Virginia, and she died on the way home in 19 and 12. So they named it the Lottie Moon World Christmas Offering. But here's my point. It could have easily been called the Virginia Women's Sewing Circle and Bake Sale Group Offering because she was on the field year after year because people raised money to get her there. They held the ropes. They held the rope. We just know Lottie Moon, but there are people that stood there holding the ropes. You guys, we held the ropes. Some of you go, we all hold the ropes. So, so, so that's why I've got these. I want to challenge you with, with Christmas, these standards of what we do for Christmas, application. I can't find them. Can you put the four points up there? Four points, guys. Can you see it? Well, number one, I'll try to find it. Number one. Is it there? No. Yes, one. Okay. Thank you. Everybody here participate in the Lottie Moon World Christmas Offering. I'm, I'm asking you for 100% participation if you are a child of God by faith in the blood of Jesus on the cross. So, what that means, if you're a college student, a lot of you college students, I know that you guys are poorer than church mice in August. So, so you, you skip... Starbucks this week, and the five bucks you use there or ten bucks, you give. Or, or, or some of us who aren't at the Citadel eating the delicious meals you guys get, uh, you're eating on your own, fast for a day, and the ten bucks you'd use. So we all give. We all give. And if you are an adult and you're in the market, marketplace and you've got a job, I'm saying that, that, that those of us with jobs, we give at least 200 bucks. Some of us can give a whole lot more than that. But I say every adult with a job, 200 bucks. And, and quite frankly, there should, there should be a sense of sacrifice there. So you, you, you cap your, your, your gifts. Um, <clears throat> many of you have asked me this, Pastor, what can we get you for Christmas? And I appreciate that. That's a joke. Nobody's asked me that. <laughs> but if you are going to ask me that, you know what? I don't need anything. I really don't. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just bought some shoes, and I thought, I'll probably wear these shoes when I die. I'm 20 years from dying or so. You know, it's just, it's, I'm getting to the end. Blue jeans. I bought some blue jeans recently. These will, I'll wear these until I die. That type of thing, because they, they last they last, you know. So I'm, I'm older, so I'm, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. Give it to missions. So that the, the, those people groups in North Africa that have never heard can hear about Jesus and be saved. Um, the, the second point is this. So 100% participation. That, that means everybody. Okay, you get it? Everybody. What's number two? Can you throw it up there? Number two, I'll just read it. Yep, thank you. So intentionally reach out to an unchurched friend or neighbor. Invite them into your circle by having hospitality. I mean, just ask them to go. The, the Christmas concert is this Friday and Saturday at 7 o'clock, Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Bring them and take them out for hot chocolate, bowl of soup, 
potentially or just have them out and, uh, you know, talk about Christmas. But, but, but listen, here's my, sometime as you build friendships, you've got, you really, we've got to mention the name of Jesus. And it's, it can be something like, really, we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, Christmas songs. and well, Who do you think Jesus was? That's interesting. That's all you have to do. We just say his name. Is it one? Uh, last night, I had a concert here. It was glorious. Again, had intermission. There was a policeman standing in the back, uh, hired by the Charleston Symphony to, to control the, the ruly crowd going to see Messiah. It was a wild group of people, man. And uh, so he's standing there, bored, because nothing to do. And I go back, and uh, he's a Mount Pleasant policeman, and start talking to him, and a really nice guy. Been on the force for 11 years, and I said, you know, this, this is beautiful music. I, what, what is your faith orientation? What do you think about faith? Said, what do you mean? He says, well, what do you think about Jesus? He said, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, cool. He told me about his kids. And he said, Pastor Man, you probably recognize me. When I was a student, I went to East Cooper. I was in Campus Outreach. I went on two beach projects. I said, buddy, you're in. You are in. So, but it was just, but it was just, just what do I, I mean, what, what do you think? It's just easy. Thirdly, uh, be, be a people or, or person who walks in, again, known repentance. Uh, every person here has something that we should repent of every day, whether it's just being lazy or whether it's being unkind or whether it's thinking bad thoughts. Or, I mean, just, just walk in humility before the Lord. But, but understand this. You're part of a team, and it's glorious, and it's something a whole lot bigger than you and me. And it's got eternal ramifications, and it's something that can really energize you. So be energized and, and be glad and be incredibly thankful because Jesus is king, and he's spoken, and we have a place to stand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of just thinking through Scripture. Thank you for the joy of singing some of these hymns like veiled in flesh the godhead see hell incarnate deity well, what a wonderful statement um, or, or the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight O little town of Bethlehem I, that, that all the hopes and the dreams and the Old Testament promises are woven together and explode in grandeur in the person and work of Jesus uh, thank you that, that the same Mount of Olives that Solomon used to make altars to gods where people would sacrifice little babies is the same piece of land where the matchless Son of God ascended to heaven and where he prayed. So we thank you for that. Thank you for that history. And we pray for friends who are just, uh, they, they believe in a general God that's kind of there and undefinable. And I, I pray that they would meet the God of true definition, the eternal God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.